another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host. Since the launch of the show, I've been asked the same thing. Why are you doing this? And I give everyone the same answer. This podcast is about talking to people and just having a discussion. Today, we often find ourselves becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, in mid-2019, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again. So with no notes, no questions, I sit down with the subject to learn about them from them. And today, we continue our special episodes with the Green Party of Canada leadership candidates. Today, I sit down with Anna Mee Paul. Anna Mee and I chat about her campaign, how she views the leadership of the Green Party of Canada, We also talk about the oil industry, how a Torontonian can connect with rural Canada, and how the Green Party of Canada needs to be daring moving forward. So, here now is Cross Border Interviews featuring Anna Mee Paul. Anna Mee, um, usually I would start off my interview by asking everyone the exact same question, so you are no exception. Where did your sense of duty come from? Uh, my mother and my grandmother, absolutely. They were both public servants. My mother was a uh, elementary school teacher, both in the Caribbean before she immigrated and also here in Canada, in, in Toronto. And my grandmother was a nurse. Uh, she was a nurse and a midwife, actually the, the, the main one and the little island that she came from. And then my um, then she continued that here. She actually wasn't able to fully continue it because, you know, we have foreign uh, credentials, accreditation issues, but she worked as a nurse's aide in the hospitals. And so there was always, and beyond that, they were very involved in the community, um, you know, in their churches. They were very, very civic minded. My mother is 84 and she still volunteers extensively. She's one of those super volunteers. She has a t shirt for every possible occasion. And so it definitely, definitely came from them. It was almost a, a given, you know, a girl growing up. It was just an expectation that you would find some way to convert your talents into some form of public service. And you decided to go the law route. Uh, your uh, your mother and your grandmother decided to go nursing and teaching. What, yeah. what was it about law that sort of drove you in that direction? Was there a particular issue that you were passionate about or was it something new? Well, you know, I, I went to law school very, very early. I was I was admitted after two years of undergraduate studies, so I started law school at 19. Um, and so I, you know, I went to law school not so much knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but more so knowing that the, the skills uh, that I would acquire during my studies, the training, that it would be applicable for, let's say, the things that mattered to me, which was really public service. So uh, I went to the University of Ottawa for law school exactly because uh, that law school had a tradition and still has a tradition of preparing lawyers for non-traditional careers and uh, being in the nation's capital as well and being being very interested in public institutions it was the perfect place so I really recommend it I recommend it as a great um, gateway profession for anyone interested in public policy in particular now did you always have your uh, sight set on politics or was that something that came later on in life Later on, definitely. I, I knew definitely that, uh, I mean, the, the, the common thread through everything that I've done is definitely being public service. Uh, but uh, I mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, plan on, on running in politics uh, early on. And, you know, I had done a, a number of 
things that exposed me to politics very early on. I was a, a page at 12 in the Ontario legislature. I was a page in the Senate when I was at law school. I started not at law school the year before I went to law school. I also did a, a one-year internship in the Ontario legislature. And so I was exposed to politics uh, very early. And one of the things that it, uh, the, the lessons I would say that it taught me is that um, you really don't want to be a career politician. <laughs> and uh, you also, you could also really spot the people who had entered politics right at the very beginning of their of their their professional lives. Um, there was just a, a depth of, of of experience outside of politics that that they were missing. And so I thought that if I ever did do politics, I would still want to have a full uh, life outside of it and many many different professional pathways before I ever entered. And now you could have chosen uh, any three levels. Uh, as a Toronto girl, you could have chosen uh, municipal, you could have control, uh, chose provincial, but you chose federal. What was that all about? What what made you drive towards federal politics instead of provincial or municipal? Well, I think part of that probably comes down to my the issues that I'm particularly focused on, the ones that uh, that attracted me to politics in the first place and to the Green Party. Uh, you know, the climate emergency is something that is really an existential threat. And for someone like me, who's a policy analyst and who's worked uh, globally and who's who's been in the room while discussions about the climate emergency are going on, uh, that was something that I knew I wanted to be involved with if I was going to get involved in politics. Um, and then, you know, I think also my my international experience, I spent a fair number of years working in international relations and public diplomacy. And so the level of government that is most fully implicated uh, in that uh, that type of work is the is the federal uh, government. So I think that those were the things that attracted me. But that being said, all of the levels of government are extremely important. And I was also really interested in seeing the ways that a federal government and a federal politician could contribute to uh, greater intergovernmental cooperation as well. Now, you talked about your introduction to the Greens. Uh, growing up in Toronto, the Greens were not as prominent as they are right now. So That's was right. it always the Green Party or was there some flirtation with some other parties before you finally decided upon the Green Party? Well, I, uh, you're right that the Green Party, certainly growing up, it wasn't a party that I was particularly aware of. And in terms of immigrant communities, there has historically been quite a tie between immigrant communities and the Liberals, because many of our largest waves of immigration came during a Liberal governments. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I, I always had work that pretty much um, determined that I couldn't be involved in a partisan way in politics. I was working in the not for profit sector or working in government. So when I when I was able finally to to decide that I was going to join a party, I looked at all of them with fresh eyes. Um, and it was clear that the Green Party was the the only one for me. I had been approached by other parties to run for them in the past. Uh, but um, I, I, there's just not there wasn't quite the alignment that you would need for that. And the Green Party and I, we share the same values. And, uh, you know, I, I'm I've never looked back. It's I, I joined um, not too long ago. I joined last year, but uh, it was very clear for me for some time that that would be 
in the party I would want to join. So let, let's talk about last year. So 2019, you decide to finally yeah. put your name on the ballot after years yeah. of probably parties coming up, up to you because your resume looks like the perfect politician resume. So uh, you finally <laughs> decide to put your name on the ballot in Toronto Centre, mm -hmm. a, a riding yeah. held by the Liberals for who knows how long, but you decide right. to go up against the finance minister. W was that a hard decision? Mm -hmm. No, not really. Not at all. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm a Torontonian. I was born, actually born in that riding. They, the, you know, the board, the boundaries keep changing uh, because the population keeps growing. But I was born in that riding and uh, my mother actually began her teaching career in that riding. And my grandmother worked for most of her life in the hospitals in that riding. So, you know, it was it was very um, it was very easy for me to to decide that that was the right riding for me. And it also really it's the smallest riding riding in Ontario, uh, not in Ontario, in Canada, rather. It's the smallest riding in Canada, so it's incredibly dense, it's incredibly diverse, uh, and a lot of the challenges that we're facing as a country are played out uh, in, a, in a very concentrated, intense way in that area. We have a massive opioid crisis in that riding. It's actually the epicenter of the opioid crisis in Canada. We also have uh, several pockets of very low income um, residents as well in that area. And we're dealing with all of the other issues related to density and affordability as well. It's one of the least affordable ridings in Canada and also has one of the highest um, crime rates in Canada. So it's a, a riding where if you you know many of the things that one should care about before they decide to get into politics are are played out on a on a daily basis now that election did not go your way it did not go your way uh, the green party's way either yes you mm -hmm. did pick up an extra seat um Looking at that campaign and just as an outsider's perspective, the mm -hmm. traditional fact is the Greens usually do extremely well at the beginning of a campaign because people are saying, you know what, I'm going to give a chance. And then usually right at the end, it's, oh, I don't want this party or I don't want this party, so I'm mm -hmm. going to vote strategically. How does the Green Party overcome that going forward and even under a potential leadership of yourself? How do you get people to stick with the Green Party? Well, you're absolutely right that people did vote strategically and there are many, you know, post-election surveys and focus groups, et cetera, that confirm that. Uh, and I don't think that the things that cause people to vote strategically are going to change. I think the, the fear mongering and the anti, you know, the anti-vote as opposed to the pro-vote that many people cast in that election, that's not likely to change because I think it's been proven to be a very effective approach by the other parties. And so in our case, uh, what we need to do, and I think that uh, the last two months has really given us an opportunity, uh, not an opportunity, but an opening uh, that we haven't had in, in the past uh, to make our case. Um, we just need to continue to make the case. Uh, we've seen in the last two months how many of the policies that the Greens proposed in the last election and that the other parties uh, dismissed as idealistic, impossible um, uh, policies are, are the ones that have mattered the most. 
You know, um, we, we, we accept now, I think Canadians have come together in an incredible way to accept that we never want anyone to fall between the cracks and that we want to make sure that no one faces financial catastrophe just because they've lost their job, whether it's for a pandemic or other reasons. So we have a proof of concept. We have a proof of our ideas that uh, we didn't have in the last election. And so our job is to help Canadians to connect the dots between what's happening now and what we need for the recovery and and the role that the Green Party can play in that. So uh, so we'll talk about the future now. Um, The 2019 election happened. Uh, Elizabeth May decided after that she was going to step down. She made a promise to her daughter. Um, and you decided to put your name forward. Why mm-hmm. now? Why did you decide now? A one-time candidate, let, let's do it. Let's put my name forward for the party. So why did you decide now is the time to put your name forward? Well, it wasn't an immediate decision. It was a, a surprise to us all when Elizabeth announced. We knew that she wasn't likely to uh, be the candidate, sorry, to run as the leader uh, in the next election. So we knew she was likely to step down, but we thought it would be later. Um, after she made that decision, I, I took some time. It is it is a huge decision and it really involves all of your family. It involves your friends. Uh, I had taken time out of uh, paid employment to run in the last election you have to do it again this time I have children it was really a big decision and politics is is uh, particularly the competitive side of it uh, is very unpleasant you know <laughs> it's it's just not a lot of fun and so I thought about it and talked to a lot of people for uh, several months before making the decision I made the decision at the end of January uh, and it's it's really because I think that at this moment in any case uh, I am the a person that certainly uh, has the the background um, the the global experience uh, the training and social of the, the track record rather and social innovation uh, that the party and and also the country needs. You know, we really need people who have the the comfort in finding novel solutions, uh, evidence-based always to uh, unprecedented challenges. Uh, And then also that understand that we're really connected to people outside of our country and what happens abroad impacts us here, which we know we we, we see in COVID. So I think that at this moment in the Green Party's history, I have a, a unique set of skills and experience that I'm hoping the members will agree makes me a compelling uh, voice for them um, in relation to the Canadian public. Now, you mentioned COVID. Yeah. You, you announced your campaign at the beginning of January when things were, quote unquote, pre-normal or normal yes. at that time. Now mm-hmm. we are into this unknown uh, vacuum of not talking to each other, social distancing, connecting virtually. How is a campaign being run virtually? Is it was it mm-hmm. is it harder than you expected because of all the new constraints that are in place? Well, it's being run like this virtually. <laughs> this is one of the things. Uh, you know, it's it's really important. It's always um, it's a day by day thing. But today, it's still very important to recognize that many Canadians are still right in the middle of COVID. You know, it's not something that uh, has happened. It's something that is still actually happening. And, uh, you know, you you just mentioned that uh, that you've uh, survived it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. That's that's, you know, it's a relief. But other people haven't. You know, my my um, my sister, her best friend lost her mother. 
Um, um, my my husband, he's an international human rights lawyer, and he has colleagues that have passed away in other countries. So it, it is a it is a real human tragedy. Uh, so how figuring out how to how to run a leadership race in that in that context is is a challenge, but certainly not the worst challenge that a person can face. And in our case, we're trying to be just as useful as we can um, and constructive as we can during this period. So when we're talking about policy, we're talking about COVID recovery. Uh, we're talking about the the uh, the the, uh, the post the planning that has to happen for what comes next. Um, we're talking about how to make sure people don't fall through the cracks now and how um, we keep the government accountable while also supporting it. It's very important to have solidarity at this moment with uh, the other parties and the other levels of government. But at the same time, when they're making mistakes, uh, we still need to be able to uh, point that out. So we're trying to be a constructive part of the national conversation and we've just gone virtual. The things that we would have done face to face uh, we're doing online now and I think it's a great it's opportunity it's an opportunity to be creative you know this is not how I would have chosen to do it I really would have liked the in-person face-to-face contact I don't think this replaces it but at the same time you know we we're, we're a vast country and so if we can find ways that are effective to connect with each other more often um, even if it's in a virtual way then I think that that's a really good thing and I think that um, I'm coming out of this period that more and more people and politicians are going to use uh, this technology to stay more frequently connected with uh, their constituents, which is which is a good thing. And what are you hearing from Canadians when you're holding these virtual town halls, when you're mm-hmm. out there discuss, discussing with uh, Canadians? Because I, in the interviews I've seen with you, and I've done some research just to make sure that yeah, I'm prepared for this, is uh, you are the bottom. You, you like you like to hear what Canadians want to hear. Uh, they want and then that's the policy that you will make from the uh, the that the green party will have under your leadership so if there's policy that the canadians want you will uh, implement it you're not the top down where you will implement policy and let the canadians sort of figure it out themselves so what are you hearing from canadians well, that's a pretty good summary of the Green Party model. You know, the, our our model is is very much grassroots and and member driven, and so we have a, a process. You know, we have quite a, a an elaborate process of policy development that originates with our members, and every two years we have a policy convention where we discuss policies and and pass new ones, and you know, adopt adapt. Uh, existing ones. And so I, one of the reasons I joined the Green Party was exactly because it had that model. It's a very participatory model. It means that you have space for good ideas to come from many different sources, and it prevents the kind of concentration of power in the hands of a you know, the, the inner circle of the, the leadership uh, that you see in other political parties, which is great for the people on the inside, but terrible for everybody else, including the uh, the other members of the party and the other MPs. Uh, and so I'm very attracted to that. And, and certainly as the leader of the Green Party, the idea is that I am there to represent the policies of, of the, the membership uh, and, to, and to represent those to Canadians. The idea is that if I'm a compelling voice for them, that Canadians will resonate with our messages, that they will decide to vote for us, that they will decide to become members. And so really you're, you're um, as much as anything else, looking for someone that you think will be a compelling spokesperson for the party. And Canadians, you know, whether, it, whether they're members or not, 
the Canadians are very uncertain about the future. They they know that we're living through an unprecedented moment. Um, they want to see a high level of cooperation and collaboration between uh, their elected representatives at all the different levels. They want to know what comes next. They want to know that they're going to be protected um, and supported. And so, you know, those are the things that we're we're listening, we're hearing, and those are the things absolutely that we're going to be responding to. And I do think, again, if you look at our, our platform from the last election and the things that we've been saying for years and years, uh, the Green Party has been talking exactly about this. How do we make sure that people never fall through the cracks in Canada, whether in good times or bad times? And so uh, I think that that also is resonating with Canadians um, as well. So how do you, a person from Toronto, downtown Toronto, the heart of downtown Toronto, connect with those rural voters? Because Mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing that you hear from rural areas. I'm from a rural area in Ontario, so the biggest concern that I always heard heard around the kitchen table was... um, Oh, that politician from Montreal or Toronto or uh, Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatoon, they don't know what the rural communities are facing. So how are you Mm -hmm. connecting to those rural communities to make sure that you hear those voices, but also different opinions? Because to properly form a government, you have to have all sides of the potential uh, uh, political spectrum talking to you because, A, you have to listen to all Canadians and not just your constituents. That's right. And well, first, let me say that, you know, I was I was born in Toronto, not that I was born in the down downtown, but I lived a little further away from the downtown, but in Toronto. So definitely I'm urban. Uh, but you know, my, I come from a family of farmers on both sides. You know, my family uh, on both sides before they moved to Canada, that's what, that's what they did. They lived in rural areas and they were farmers. My mother's island actually um, was historically called the breadbasket of the Caribbean because it supplied most of the food for the neighboring islands. Uh, and so, you know, that, that you never fully lose that because the way that you're raised and the values that uh, that people that you know that worked the land and came from small communities the values that they have they transmit those to their children and so I think the way that um, you know we, we think of rural communities the way that people take care of each other the way that they look out for their neighbors the way that they they come together in times of, of need uh, and also in you know in, in celebration those are things that I'm very familiar with but you really hit the na- the nail on the head when you said that you have to represent all of those perspectives and so that's where the diversity part comes in and that's why we talk so much in our campaign about diversity we're not just talking about racial and ethnic diversity we're also talking about geographic diversity you know we're talking about diversity in age we're talking about um, you know all of the forms of diversity that um, need to come together to get the very best public policy because we know and this is evidence-based, and this was one of my areas of of academic specialization, we know that diversity makes better public policy. Um, You know, no one can speak better for the interests of rural people than rural people themselves. And so, of course, you want them there at the table. Uh, And so we're trying to model that as much as we can, even within our campaign team. We have people country. We have people, many people, in fact, either that um, who are based in rural areas or who grew up in rural areas. Uh, and so you can definitely, you'll definitely see that perspective reflected in our campaign. And we're going to be putting out some policy about that in a little while. Now, 
one of the reasons why a rural communities don't traditionally gravitate towards the green green party is mm-hmm. uh, they they sometimes will propose a and let's call it what it is a carbon tax uh, tax on yeah. carbon uh, the liberals did it this time and or last election last government and you saw them decimated in rural on uh, Canada um, mm-hmm. how can you sway a voter who just looks at it as a potential money grab for money going out of their pocket raising the cost of living but also while it is, it's helping the environment and helping us potentially save the world. How do you balance those two out? Because when you talk to rural uh, Canadians, and I've done that a lot through my journalism career, sure, they don't want to listen to that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 tough, you know. And again, we we have to assume, I think, as a party, that the things, um, the 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 communications tactics that are used by some of the other parties. Uh, I'm thinking, in particular, in this case, the Conservatives, that those are never going to change. And so, um, the Liberals have so far lost that um, public relations battle, and I would say that we have as well. Because when we talk about the carbon tax, we know that it is actually again evidence evidence indicates you know that it is the uh, cheapest way of, of of achieving the greenhouse gas emissions that we want when compared to some of the other things whether it's regulation which costs but the costs are hidden or other things um, and we also know that we it can be designed and has been designed in many countries so that the money that comes out of your pockets one day you get all of that back and maybe even more um, and so you know when we talk about it we're talking about it in a revenue neutral way so that it, you get you get the money any any money that's taken out of your pocket you're made whole um, you know by the time uh, tax you know the tax time comes around but you know we have to win that PR battle and and it really is a question of communicating this effectively to Canadians um, and we're not going to get any help from the conservatives in that even though as you said the planet. <laughs> And our country hangs in the balance. And so we need to just do that work again, uh, continuously of explaining it to them and trying to find the the right formula, because we are um, convinced, we remain convinced that for the sake of Canadians and as the cheapest way to do this, the carbon tax is still the right option. Now, I was going to jump into something else, but we'll stick to this because, again, I'm from Alberta, so I have to ask the Alberta question here. Mm Two, two points here. Uh, Premier Jason Kennedy of Alberta said uh, a few weeks ago that he does not want to work with anyone who is against the oil and gas industry because that's the backbone of our economy. Uh, mm-hmm. A few weeks later, and actually probably a few days ago, uh, the current uh, House of Commons leader, I want to make sure I get her title right, Elizabeth May, former leader of your party, said that oil is dead. Mm-hmm. How do you work with a premier who says they will not work with you if you do not support the oil and gas industry? And B, do you support the oil and gas industry? Well, first, I mean, I don't know if, if you've done your research recently, then you'd know that uh, my brother is uh, an oil and gas worker. He's currently laid off, but he uh, he's been working as a roughneck out on roughneck out on the uh, the oil rigs uh, in the in the oil patch, and so. 
um, you're essentially asking me, am I, am I for my brother or am I against my brother? And, and I just, I'm, I am not, not at all. Uh, and I would never, ever support a party that wasn't for him, that I didn't believe was in it for him and in it for the other um, men on his crew. I mean, it's really all men. So I can say men in this instance. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about uh, who are we for, uh, I'll tell you that we're for the workers. We're for all of the oil patch workers. And what we're looking for is for a future uh, for them. We're looking for jobs, not the jobs that are going to be here next year or the year after that, but the jobs that they can count on for the rest of their working lives. And oil is in decline. There is no question about that. Stephen Harper said that many times while he was uh, the prime minister. So this is not a green message. It's uh, it's just a fact. Um, and so we do need to start making that transition. I need to start. Um, we do need to start thinking. Sorry, your screen froze for a second. Oh, I uh, we do need to start thinking. Of, no worries, no worries. It might be mine next. So, but we do need to start thinking about. Uh, um, you know, what are what are the jobs and what are the sectors that we can be investing in for those long term jobs? Uh, and in terms of uh, the premier, you know, I just think that this situation has been handled in an. In- incredibly um, irresponsible way. You know, it's nothing short of reckless, um, if not out and out negligent, to leave such a large part of your uh, regional economy or the economy of your province dependent upon one raw resource um, that is um, that is not controlled by, by you know, by you. Um, you know, the price of, of oil is not set in Alberta. And so you never want to leave uh, your economy so exposed um, to global markets that are so incredibly volatile. And so we should have done this work a long time ago. I had been encouraged when I heard Premier Kenny talking about um, the creation of an economic recovery council um, that was going to have the job of looking into economic diversification. Um, he seems to have backed away from that. And I think it's very unfortunate uh, because you do need that diversification. There really is no developed country um, that would normally allow itself to be so heavily dependent upon uh, a raw material uh, on a market that it doesn't control. And what do we move away to? You, you talk about those jobs uh, that they might not be here 20 years, 30 years, 10 years from now. What do, what should we move away to? Uh, I, I've talked to uh, competitors of yours and they say green uh, jobs, uh, more uh, internet-based jobs. So what, in your opinion, and I know you like to listen to the grassroots, but in your opinion, mm-hmm. what, yeah. should, what should we move away? What should, the, what should we be looking at to our future? They, you know, we, we proposed in our platform, and it is important to remember that we had an election not that long ago where, you know, we and the other parties, uh, I think, reasonably should have been expected to propose those kind of solutions. And we did. You know, we had a very elaborate, uh, very well-researched um, uh, policy program talking about a just transition and also about, specifically about the kind of jobs that we envisioned uh, for um, for people, transit workers transitioning out of uh, out of the oil oil and gas sector, and so you know you know some of those things. Yes, I don't need a, a whole new list from um, from the uh, my uh, my competitors, as you said. Some of the things are things that we need to do if we're going to dramatically 
um, decarbonize uh, our country. So we do need to talk about building infrastructure uh, that is um, based on renewable energies. So whether we're talking about a coast-to-coast-to-coast electrical grid, um, whether we're talking about uh, creating a, a network of recharging stations for electrical cars, whether we're talking about um, um, solar or wind energy, those are things that we all need to invest in. Um, in the short term, though, and we really have to look at the short term, we need to make sure those workers have a job on day one. And so, you know, the the mass, the, the 1.7 billion that uh, the Liberals have invested in um, cleaning up the orphan oil wells in Alberta, that was something that we called for in the last election, and we were ridiculed for it and told that it was impossible, and yet here it is. And so that's something that an oil worker can do on day one. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of work of cleaning up and uh, rehabilitating environmental liabilities that workers have already been trained for. Um, we also know that um, many of these uh, orphan wells and uh, other wells can be created, um, can be converted rather into geothermal energy. And so there's a whole suite of immediate things that can be done on day one. And then, you know, if we invest and subsidize renewable energies and these other kind of infrastructure projects, the way we've been subsidizing uh, the fossil fuel industry, then we have a real shot. Now, one of the other areas, the one I was looking on your website, the, the the one policy area that I found, and I found it interesting, and I want to dive a little bit into it because I didn't know about this, and it might be a Green Party policy already, but uh, when it comes to Aboriginal issues, you're yes. calling for the creation of a Council of Canadian Governments. That's right. So for my listeners who might not uh, be the policy wonks that I am who go through all these policies right. before interviews, what is that? So this was proposed in in our um, 2019 uh, election platform. Uh, And what we're saying with the Council of Canadians is that we need to have a permanent structure available so that all of the the various uh, levels of government uh, uh, are are, are, uh, have a have a permanent have a permanent Uh, platform for the discussions of high priority issues. Um, When we're talking about uh, Indigenous peoples, when we're talking about First Nations, Inuit, Métis, uh, we we include them in that because we are only interested in a nation-to-nation relationship between uh, the governments of Canada, between the Crown uh, and those First Nations, uh, the Inuit and and the Métis. And so instead of the ad hoc relationship that we have now, which very much leaves those, uh, those um, those peoples in a, a, a constant pleading, right? Uh, sort of as a supplicant. Um, this is a, this is a platform for them to meet nation to nation to talk about issues of um, of shared concern. And we also uh, we also highlighted the Council of Canadian Governments in relation to uh, municipalities as well, because we know that municipalities simply just do do not have the tools that they need uh, in order to really deal with. Uh, the, the 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 urgent needs of of the uh, residents uh, of their communities, and we've seen that during this pandemic, the services that people rely on the most are services that are provided by municipalities. Yet they have really no powers of taxation. They cannot run deficits. Um, they cannot um, plan because they don't have um, legislative control and certainty. And so, you know, we need to uh, um, renegotiate the relationships between the levels of government and. Also, our relationships with our indigenous peoples, and this is a way to do that. Now, one of the issues that might come up, though, is 
who is the uh, leader of the First Nations? We are seeing across Canada hereditary chiefs and elected chiefs at odds with each other in First Nations communities. So when you're looking at a Council of Canadian Governments, how do you... uh, how do you balance the, that those issues from First Nation to First Nation? Because some First Nations don't have those issues where others might have those issues. Mm-hmm. Well, we can't let the the difficulty in answering that question uh, dissuade us from actually doing it. That's the first thing that we should say. Um, and, you know, this was a very typical, you know, we, we're all uh, partially a, um, you know, a product of our experience. In my case, I come from a culture, a diaspora where we have, I don't know where my ancestors are from. I don't know what languages they spoke. I don't know what culture. Um, we're not native to the Caribbean, the, pe- the indigenous Indigenous peoples who live there um, were all slaughtered, uh, and uh, then black people were were imported as slaves there. So that is, you know, we we have an attachment to that place, but it's not where we're from. Uh, and so, you know, I'm very conscious of of how important these uh, these issues are. Um, and uh, we also know from our experience of colonialism in 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 uh, the countries that you know in Africa that we did come from that this is a very typical tactic of colonial governments, which is to divide and conquer. You take one group within a community and you elevate them or you create a structure that elevates them and it puts them at odds with other leaders in their community. And so this is something that indigenous peoples and indigenous communities struggle with, but it's the story of colonialism all over the world. So we just have to do the best with the bad system that we inherited. Um, We need to um, give indigenous um, communities uh, the scope and the freedom to sort this out, knowing that they didn't create the problem in the first place, and we should never prevent have that prevent us from doing the right thing and uh, doing the hard work of reconciliation. Are we doing enough to help First Nations and Aboriginal and Indigenous communities across Canada? And if if not, how can we fix that on day one of a Paul government? Well, we can't fix it on on day one. The the, the answer to your, your question is absolutely not. Uh, you know, we we aren't <laughs> by any measurable standard. We are um, failing uh, Indigenous peoples uh, on you know on Turtle Island on on this uh, these territories. Um, whether you're looking at uh, um, education, um, whether you're looking at rates of incarceration, whether you're looking at access to basic needs like like safe housing and and safe drinking water, um, whether you're looking at the just the basic respect. Uh, for the um, the agreements that were made, um, we, it has been a failure, and it continues to to be a failure. And so, the one thing that I can say as the leader of the Green Party, because we really have made um, reconciliation um, with Indigenous peoples and true em- empowerment of Indigenous peoples, a cross-cutting theme. Uh, within our policies and and across our platform is that they will have a true ally in me. Uh, As I said, part of it is just my personal experience, um, but a lot of it is really just basic justice and equity. Anyone who truly believes in those things could not feel at all comfortable um, with the state of affairs. I mean, this is like living in the United States during the the peak of the uh, civil rights movement, and you either are working for justice and equality or, or you're not. And so we all have a responsibility uh, to be allies um, and try to move us a little closer every year to true reconciliation. What's the one policy that differentiates you from your fellow competitors? 
I don't, well, <laughs> we have such a range. We have such a range, um, really. We have um, an ever-growing list of of, um, of candidates, and in about, what day is it? We have about three weeks to go before the at least the initial list of candidates crystallizes. And so I think it's too broad a question, I'll be honest with you. There's quite a spectrum. There's quite a spectrum. There are some candidates who are really seeking for, seeking to have a very root-to-stem um, um, a radical change of the party that have very fundamental disagreements with many of our policies and, and our approach. Uh, there are others that aren't seeking to change anything uh, at all. Um, in our case, what we're focusing on are, are three themes. Uh, we're talking about diversity, democracy, and daring. Uh, and in terms of di diversity, I suppose that I'm emphasizing that uh, the most because I believe that it's our biggest challenge. I think it's the Achilles heel of the party. We really uh, are the least diverse party in Canada of the major parties, and we ran a, le a less diverse slate of candidates in the last election than even the People's Party of Canada. And so um, we have a lot of work to do. I don't think that we can credibly imagine that we can gain a lot of seats uh, unless we represent the people um, who were asking to vote from us, so, for us. And so I'm talking about that a lot. Uh, we're, we're trying to reflect that as much as we can within our campaign. And I feel really well situated to lead the party through that transformation because I've done quite a lot of work in that area. Okay, I'm going to stop you there because I'm going to ask this question yeah. and it may sound like a bad question, but just bear with me when I ask no it. I'm ready. <laughs> That's good. Um, you talk about the diversity. Um, yes. In the last election, you saw every party come out and say, I have 58% women running for us. I have 38% women. I have 10% LGBT. I have 10% Aboriginal. But yeah. then if you dive down into where they are running, it's traditionally not where the party's strength is. They are putting them up as token candidates in some sense. They're saying, you know what? We want to have you. We're going to put you in a riding that we know we're not going to win. We're not going to support you. So how do you bring diversity to the party while also ensuring that everyone has a fair, uh, fair balance chance of winning? It, you know, that's an excellent question, and you're absolutely right. There is a big difference between running a diverse slate of candidates and truly being diverse and inclusive. And, you know, I, I founded uh, an institute when I finished uh, my master's at Princeton. The first thing that I did uh, when I returned to Canada, um, thanks to a fellowship I received from an American foundation, was to found the, the first institute focused on uh, increasing the political representation of marginalized groups. And so, you know, I did a lot of writing and research about it and uh, we did training uh, for for uh, members of those groups and so one of the things we know and so I say that just to say that when I speak about these things it's based on evidence and research etc one of the things we do know is that women and uh, and racialized groups are just as electable as anyone else as as the you know the what we imagine as the typical politician if you put them in winnable ridings it's really not down it's really not down to the candidate it's down to winnable ridings and so when we talk about representation and diversity um, in politics in electoral politics we mean 
you know, scout that talent, support it, and and put those people in winnable ridings. That is really the test. And so you're absolutely right. There's a lot of tokenism. I'm not at all interested in in replicating that. Um, if we're in the, you know, if we're serious about this, then what we will do in the next election um, and leading up to it is to scout excellent talent and support it and then put those people in the winnable writings. Um, so yes, you can count on me in that regard. I'm, um, I know that trick. <laughs> now, uh, when it comes to diversity, uh, I, I think you are the embodiment of diversity. Uh, your family immigrated to Canada. You're black, you're Jewish, and you'd be the first uh, black Jewish immigrant to lead a potential federal party. This is or women of color. We've also never had any any racialized woman uh, leading a federal party either. So sorry, yeah, yeah. and a woman of color. So yeah, does that weigh on you a bit that you could be making history with mm-hmm. this win? I would say it weighs on me. I, I consider it an honor, and I think that it's far past due. I know that I'm a completely qualified candidate uh, in and in and of myself. You know, it's it's there's there's no question in a country as diverse as Canada with such extreme. We really are um, in the top two or three countries in the world in terms of attracting uh, the very best talent from around the world. You know, we we do that really better than anyone else pretty much and so we are long past the the time where the talent was scarce um every community has incredibly talented people it's just a question of opening the door you know or leveling the playing field and so you know i know that i'm completely qualified um to take on this role Uh, but i also know that it would be incredibly powerful um symbolically and otherwise because we also know that when people see themselves reflected in politics they're more engaged they vote they run uh and so i am proud to be a standard bearer uh for those people i know that it would be meaningful and and i do think that it's uh it's a you know far far past uh time for that to happen so you know it's 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 a it's a it's a badge of honor rather than a burden for me and now part of your uh campaign slogan is daring what do you mean by that how how can you and the green party be daring what is what is not daring right now about the green party because yeah. people will look at and go I, i'm potentially voting for an mp but i'm potentially just throwing it away in my rural community so how right. can how can the green party be daring under a paul leadership well, we already are. And so what I'm talking about uh, uh, when I talk about daring is really how do we reinforce that? You know, that is our natural tendency as a party. And what I mean when I say daring is not recklessness. I'm talking about being willing to propose, fearlessly propose innovative, evidence-based public policy, um, even when you're the first uh, even at the risk of, of, you know, some ridicule initially, uh, because you know that it's one, it's the right thing to do. Um, that it's it's the um, that we're proposing the solutions uh, that people in Canada need, and that you know someone has to be there pushing these ideas into the political mainstream and introducing them into the political discourse. You know, if the Green Party wasn't talking about guaranteed livable income years and years and years ago, we were the first. Then. Um, 
we wouldn't have been so comfortable talking about it now in relation to the um, COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic and the benefits that people are receiving. You know, universal pharmacare, we've been talking about that for years and years and years, cleaning up the orphan oil wells, years and years and years. And so you need at least one political party that is focused on the people and not on the polling. Um, and that is um, that is always going to uh, make those propositions. And so that is our that is really our tradition. We should never lose that of everything that we do. And that's why I love talking about it so much. It's the thing that um, that sets us apart. You know, the liberals or the NDP might decide to co-opt our um, climate emergency policies. The NDP is already uh, co-opting our guaranteed livable income um, and uh, and, you know, our tuition free uh, post-secondary education policies. So maybe they'll take those, but we'll always be proposing new things. You know, they'll they'll never be able to catch up with us because, you know, we're looking ahead and they're looking behind. So that is that is a thing to me that sets us apart. So you, you bring up an interesting point. Uh, mm-hmm. Parties typically steal from other parties ideas. Yep. Uh, yep. The Green Party is the best example of that. You mm-hmm. uh, you have been in favor of a carbon price for a long time. The Green Party. Right. Stefan Dion stole that idea and made it his own. He lost an election because of it. Uh, mm-hmm. You talked about that livable income in the NDP this term. Um, would you prefer? A government pass an idea that was presented by the Greens or a Green Party government pass the ideas. It kind of works in both ways. Are you looking at it more of we want the win ourselves or are you looking at it more of, you know what, we want credit where credit's due. If you take our ideas, great, but make sure you say we're the ones who actually presented it first. Well, what we want is what's best for people in Canada, right? At, at the end of the day, that is always has to remain our focus. And so that absolutely is, um, you know, we, we, you know, Elizabeth became quite famous for saying, you know, we want you to steal our ideas. And that's true in the sense that if your focus is really on uh, the people in Canada, then you you want the ideas to be turned into great legislation, et cetera, um, even if it's another party doing it. That being said, in order for us to have a real impact and to have those policy ideas becoming law more often, we need to be at the table. And there need to be enough of us at the table so that we can have that strong voice. And so that's the, um, you know, that's the, the trick, you know, that's the balance that we have to find. We want to be collaborative. We want to have a strong uh, degree of cross-party cooperation wherever possible, but we do need to get enough credit um, and and to promote ourselves enough so that the public knows the difference that we're making. You know, we still have a challenge of making sure that people see the difference uh, that we're we're making and why it's so important to have greens at the table. It comes back to that PR campaign, right? We talked about That's that right. carbon uh, pricing, and you needed the, uh, the right. conservatives co-opted the uh, PR. Right. So. Yeah. Um, I, with everything going on right now with COVID-19, we have to talk about the COVID-19 a bit. Um, yep. Do you think that this government's failing Canadians when it comes to helping them out? I, I think that the government has done many things uh, well. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely not going to uh, throw them under the bus. I know that they're operating under uh, an incredibly difficult set of circumstances in a really unprecedented um, scenario. Uh, so there are going to be mistakes made along the way. Um, what I'm really dissatisfied with, though, is that they have been told repeatedly now, whether it's the Greens um, uh, or the other parties, they've been told uh, for some time now that there is simply no way to plug all of the holes. Um, they, you know, every day we get a new announcement about a new group that is going to be receiving some support. Um, um, and then we, you know, as soon as that's done, um, you see that there's another group that's in need of support that hasn't gotten support. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that Disney film with Mickey Mouse where he's trying to, you know, it's a broom, Fantasia. I guess. He's trying to Fantasia, exactly. You know, and it just keeps springing up. And it's really like that. You know, there, there, there is, there's a reason that we have universal um, um, policies in Canada, like healthcare. You know, like free, um, free primary school education, because you have to sometimes just do something that covers everyone. And so I've been really unhappy to see how many people are still falling between the cracks. There is an estimated 16 to 20 percent of Canadians that don't qualify for any of the programs that the government is offering. There are still many small businesses um, that don't cover that don't qualify for any um, of the um, of the uh, aid that the uh, government is proposing, and so they they've been doing this long enough to know that there are people that are still struggling. They need to bring in universal um, policies, um, you know, and universal benefits that cover everyone. And this is why we talk about a guaranteed livable income because you know you you just you can't anticipate every scenario. Um, and so we, you need you need something that covers everyone. But how do you pay for that universal income? Well, you know, there is this is something uh, just to be clear during our campaign, um, the, the the 2019 election. What we said is, look, this is uh, almost certainly going to be something in the toolbox of things that we're going to need in the future. You know, even before the pandemic, we 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 saw that uh, artificial intelligence and automation um, were were profoundly and permanently changing uh, the you know the world of work. Um, you know, we we knew that we were going to have to figure out how do we take care of people when maybe there won't be enough jobs for everyone in the future. Uh, and so what we talked about was experimenting, was investigating the various models. This is, we, we don't deny that this is complex. Um, we don't deny that um, it's relatively um, untested, though there are some tests that are going, are going on around the world. But what we're saying again is do the work. You know, this is something that shows tremendous promise. It's something that we're going to need, or at least something like this. Let's do the work. Let's let's do the work of figuring out what exactly is going to work. And so I don't have the, the answer to that. And we didn't actually propose a particular model. What we said is we need this or some form of it. Let's investigate it. Let's experiment. Let's cooperate across levels of government and see what will work. Awesome. Uh, my last question, it's more of a not really a question, but it's a open mic for you. So to my listeners who are listening here and abroad, yeah. all across Canada, and for some reason, Australia, to my Australian followers, oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, pitch yourself. Mm -hmm. how, how, why would enemy Paul make a good leader of the Green Party? Go. 
Well, thanks. Well, thanks again for having me. Uh, just in terms of that, we talked about some of those things. I think that this is an extraordinary time. It's really an unprecedented time in Canadian history. Uh, and an unprecedented time requires the kind of leadership uh, that is out, out of the norm. Uh, the things that I bring to the table are, are a global perspective because of the many years that I spent working abroad. Uh, I think that's very important because we're dealing with global challenges, whether it's the climate emergency or whether we're talking about the pandemic or whether we're talking about the changing nature of work. These are things that cross borders. Uh, I'm a social innovator, and so I'm someone that is very comfortable operating in a novel environment um, and coming up with novel solutions. I'm very fortunate to have acquired those skills over time. Uh, and I'm also someone that is as a collaborator and someone that is a convener. Uh, and whether we're talking about uh, diversity or whether we're talking about the best ideas within the party and without. I know how to bring people together. I really fundamentally understand how important um, that diversity of ideas is to creating good public policy. Uh, and so I think that that combination of things makes me a very strong candidate, particularly at this moment when we're facing so many um, unprecedented uh, challenges and where we're going to have to have new ideas. We're going to have to be open to those ideas wherever they come from and know how to uh, to, to bring those in. Um, and we're going to have have to reach beyond our borders. So I'm excited and ultimately it's up to our members to decide, but uh, I think that those are, are some very strong skills to bring to the table at, at this point. And uh, I'm excited uh, to be part of this next chapter of the Green Party's history. Awesome. Now, uh, I, I spoke to one of your competitors and they didn't know how to answer this question, but hopefully you will okay. be able to. Give it a shot. How long do people have to register to become members to be able to vote in the leadership race? There's a competitor who did not know that. There was. Oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. <laughs> I can answer that one. So the deadline for, for, for uh, sorry, just to be clear, and I'm sure I know the answer either way, but you want to know how long do candidates have to register or? Part, Canadians to sign up to become members of okay, the Green Party perfect. of Canada. And perfect. This, okay. How long so do they, they have? have? until? They have until the beginning of September. The date is uh, September the 2nd. Uh, voting is between September the 26th and October the 3rd. Awesome. awesome. I will link your uh, website plus the Green Party's uh, website in the show notes for anyone listening. They, you can go Perfect. check out Anna Me Paul and uh, sign up for the Green Party and vote for her. Uh, but... I want to thank you for this. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, we, thank you. We're almost at an hour, and I don't want to take much more of your time, so thank you very much for this. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hello down under. <laughs> And once again, thank you to our guests for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit at our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week. 